Welcome to the Fed Heads, a weekly podcast from Grant Thornton Public Sector. Join the Fed Heads, Robert Shea and Francis Rose, each week to talk about the arcana of government management and the people who are working hard every day to improve it. Welcome to episode 194 of Fed Heads. I'm Francis Rose. And I'm Robert Shea. You have uh, taught me on a lot of things on this program over the course of the last 193 episodes. But one of the most important things that you've taught me is that transitioning from one administration to another can be one of the most difficult and and most important things that both administrations go through during their tenures. That's right. You and I have known each other during a lot of presidential transitions. The community has invested a lot in trying to improve upon the presidential transition process so that we can more seamlessly, quickly transition governance from one administration to the next. But we've also seen some pretty tumultuous ones. The year 2000 was one I remember, but also the transition from Obama to Trump, Trump to Biden, are ones that make you think, is all this effort to improve a transition really worth it since they've been so rocky? But there are some key lessons we've learned about how to make things go better during this really sensitive period in our democracy. One of the people who knows so much, maybe the most among all the people that study these things, is Valerie Smith-Boyd. She's director of the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service. Valerie, welcome. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the program. Where are we now as we sit here at the beginning of March of 2022 looking at where the administration is. It's a year and a month, a little bit more than that, into the Biden administration. How are they doing or how are they not doing? Welcome. Uh, Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And you're absolutely right that one of the most important ways for a president to get started governing is to get his team in place. And um, the lesson of this past year um, and for President Biden's experience is that you can have one of the best personnel operations in history, probably the best at being organized to get both appointments and nominations made. And you can still get stuck in the Senate confirmation process. And um, the numbers show that over the last several presidencies, it has been harder and harder uh, for uh, for presidents to, to get their teams uh, in place. So I've got lots of numbers to back that up, unfortunately. What are some of the most important numbers that, that confirm that in your mind, Valerie? So on day one, President Biden had um, a a record number of appointments, 1,136 appointees, knowing that um, they would have a hard time getting nominations through the Senate. They made about uh, 36 nominations by that day. By day 100, they'd appointed 1,500 people and nominated 220. Um, And unfortunately, what we've seen is that um, the time that it's taken to confirm those people is on average 103 days. Um, That's about three times as long as it was during President Reagan's time. The numbers are dire in in each category. The Senate returned a large number of nominations uh, to the White House on January 3rd according to a sort of obscure Senate rule that um, required the process to restart on um, 118 people. That's so terrible. This is 
this is something that I don't think I'd really reflected on is that they've got one year to get those confirmations done with a few exceptions. And then the process starts over. Of course, they can renominate those people quickly, but it really is a totally unnecessary hiccup in that process. It, it is one change that we're recommending that the Senate relook at Rule 31 on return nominations because it's it's just not clear that it's um, serving a benefit when senators are spending more and more of their time on on personnel matters. And of those 118 people that uh, were returned on January 3rd, 29 of them had been waiting between 200 and 300 days. Uh, it's it's just a shame for people to put their lives on hold for that long and, and live with that uncertainty. What are some of the other recommendations you made? So um, the single biggest thing that we think can improve uh, the process is to reduce the number of um, Senate-confirmed political positions. That number has increased drastically since 1960. Um, when President Kennedy took office, there were 779 uh, uh, Senate-confirmed political appointments. Today, there are 1,237. So it's... Uh, it, incredibly hard for a transition team, for a personnel operation to nominate, uh, vet all of those people, for the supporting agencies, the Office of Government Ethics and the FBI to do all of their review necessary. And it's really hard for the Senate to get through um, that number of people. So um, so the biggest thing we recommend is, is reducing the number of Senate-confirmed positions. And about 10 years ago, uh, we uh, worked with the Senate to make another pass at that. We're successful in reducing about 163 nominations or positions at, at the end of that process, but that's a big one. I know it's hard to get those positions removed from Senate confirmation because even though it makes logical sense, a lot of those appointees are actually invested in that credential, even though it doesn't necessarily add to their gravitas in getting the job done. It's a very good point, and it's one reason that the numbers keep growing, that um, that there's, on the one hand, uh, a clear need for Senate oversight um, and ad advice and consent. So, um, so certainly the Congress wants to sort of have the ability to weigh in on these positions, but it's true. Um, the, the people involved do um, do appreciate the gravitas. And um, in many cases, they're overseeing grants programs worth billions of dollars and, um, and have really uh, significant responsibilities, of course. Um, some of the other fixes that we'd recommend to improve the Senate confirmation process are to look at the um, privilege nomination calendar. When this was created, the idea was to take some very straightforward positions like boards and commissions and um, CFOs, assistant secretaries for legislative affairs, um, and uh, put them on a calendar that kind of takes them, never sends them to committee and um, sends them immediately to the Senate for review. Our analysis has shown that not only are the people on the privilege calendar, those positions are taking longer than they used to before the creation of the privilege calendar, they're also taking longer than all of the other positions that are not on the privilege calendar. So um, weird. That so sounds weird. like Congress in action. 
So, so clearly we need to take a look at that. Um, very good intentions, but, but not working out as intended. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, one more thing is to look at the, the Senate rule governing return nominations. That just does, does not seem to be serving the purpose that it, that it might have originally intended as well. All right, 779 Senate-confirmed appointees during the Kennedy administration, 1,237 today. That number sounds like was up around 1,400 before you and your colleagues uh, managed to get that number reduced a couple of years ago. I think I'm hearing that right. Is the solution to that more uh, politically appointed but not Senate-confirmed positions, or is the solution converting some of those jobs to uh, career jobs? So our overall recommendation is to reduce the the overall number of political appointments. Um, we have uh, about 4,000 politically appointed positions, about 1,200 of them are, are Senate confirmed. And um, it's, it's an unusual system. If you were a CEO taking over um, a, a, a new company, you would not expect to change out um, 4,000 of your most senior or significant positions at the same time. And um, as you mentioned earlier, it creates uh, some vulnerability in the system. There are some national security concerns with having so many changes happening uh, at the same time. So we do recommend looking at reducing the overall political appointments. I know you've studied the most recent presidential transition from President Trump to President Biden. What other recommendations uh, or findings have you made related to transitions based on that research? So um, we recently put out a report January 20th that examined the, uh, the 2020 to 21 transition. And we tried to provide a balanced accounting of planning and execution on, on all sides in the Trump White House, the uh, Biden transition team and um, at federal agencies, and also to provide uh, some recommendations for process reforms. What we heard from a lot of the people we interviewed is that um, the requirements in the Presidential Transition Act are strong, um, that the system is overall well-designed, that the, the changes that have been made over the, last, um, over the last few election cycles have helped. Um, however, there are some areas including information sharing um, in the event of a um, delayed ascertainment as we saw in 2020. So um, it's kind of well reported that uh, in the Trump White House, there was kind of a lack of desire for analytical support from OMB to the transition team, which has far-reaching consequences, not just for budget planning, but also for government-wide regulations and rulemaking. So we recommend that the Congress look at um, kind of codifying OMB's role as a service provider to help uh, a transition team uh, get organized for government-wide planning. We also looked at information sharing by federal agencies, and this is a tricky one because um, GSA and federal agencies, all of the experts that you talk to are very clear. There is one president at a time, and if there's a delayed ascertainment, you want to be very careful not to um, share uh, 
sensitive information with a candidate who might not become president. That said, one of the lessons of 2020 is that um, that three-week period was extremely valuable, and we would encourage uh, federal agencies to kind of lean into providing the kind of information that a new team would need to know in its first weeks in office. So, um, so lean in a little more on the information sharing. Well, I just want to applaud you that given the chaos the country was going through, for you have distilled some positives out of that um, and recommendations uh, to build on was quite a um, an aerobic feat. So I just want to <laughs> congratulate you and your colleagues on that. There, there are some good things to say. I think the, the Biden transition team uh, did an absolutely outstanding job in uh, preparing for the unknown, knowing that there would be a not zero chance of a, of a delayed ascertainment and managed to keep going during that time. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of underreported that uh, Chris Liddell, the, the White House Deputy Chief of Staff at the time, really did a responsible job um, ensuring information from the White House and, um, and federal agencies and meeting all the requirements of the Presidential Transition Act. So there's a good story to tell there. And I'd be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to my predecessor in this position, Dave Merchick, who also was um, uh, applauded uh, both sides of the aisle by everyone involved for really helping uh, keep that transition going during the, the very rockiest times. There is a lot here in uh, not just this work, but other work that uh, your organization has done about transitions, Valerie, and I commend it to anybody who cares about this stuff because it's really important and it's really meaty, and I appreciate you coming on talking about it today. Thanks, Valerie. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to meet you. Thanks for listening to The Fed Heads, brought to you by Grant Thornton Public Sector. All of the resources talked about during the episode are available in the episode description. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on Twitter at GT Public Sector to join the conversation. And don't forget to leave us a comment or review on iTunes or the Google Play Store. 